Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you a message uh, from Archbishop Sheen uh, dated back to 1944. Uh, We've been going through Sheen's reflection during the Second World War, and uh, many of you know that I've been appearing on uh, social media, uh, EWTN television, and various uh, media outlets talking about Sheen's writings during the war years because they're very relevant today. And uh, again, people are asking me about peace. You know, how can we get peace in Ukraine, peace in the Middle East, uh, peace in China, and uh, everywhere else in the world? And so Fulton Sheen in 1944 wrote a book called The Seven Pillars of Peace. And uh, he was very clear that uh, peace can be uh, found if we apply these Christian principles. And so uh, this is kind of what we've been trying to, um, I guess, deliver these messages to help make sense. And today's lesson is entitled, The Political Conditions of World Peace, uh, because you have to have the right political environment to have this happen. And so we're going to enjoy the wisdom of Sheen uh, back again from 1944. It's hard to believe that these messages, even though uh, given almost 80 years ago, are still relevant today. So we'll enjoy that. And of course, we'll share with you a a lighter presentation, uh, Fulton Sheen giving an address at a retreat a number of years ago. And he's going to be talking about the topic of confession. And I think we all uh, sometimes cower a little bit uh, uh, when the proposal is made for us to go to confession. Uh, But he makes it a lot easier on us. And so, uh, again, looking forward to that. So, uh, as I do each week, I just ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, as he gives a reflection entitled, The Political Condition of World Peace. Please enjoy. Today, the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen again addresses the Catholic Hour radio audience. The subject he has chosen for this evening's talk is the political condition of world peace. Monsignor Sheen. The basic idea of these broadcasts is to enlist all men of goodwill, Jews, Protestants, and Catholics, in their preservation of the moral law. Next Sunday, we will speak of the moral law in domestic society. Today in politics. The basic moral principle of the political order is the state exists for the person. 
not the person for the state. Democracy is founded on this principle. Totalitarianism on its contrary. Why is our position right from the moral point of view? First, because the person is prior in origin to the state. That is, persons existed before states. God made man according to his image and likeness. Man makes the state according to his image and likeness. Second, the state exists for the person because the person is nobler in nature than the state. The person has an eternal destiny, whereas the state has only a temporal destiny. Third, the state exists for the person because the person, having an immortal soul, is the subject of rights. Centipedes have no rights, neither have cabbages, and they have no rights because they have no souls. This moral truth of the supremacy of the person is enshrined in our Constitution and in our American traditions. Our Declaration of Independence declares it is a self-evident principle that the Creator, the Creator, has endowed man with certain unalienable rights, among which are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To our founding fathers, it was clear that rights and liberties flowed from a divinely created personality. And to further safeguard this self-evident principle, the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution stated that when the Constitution did enumerate certain rights, it must never be assumed that the people have no other rights than those so enumerated. In other words, since rights and liberties were not state-given but God-given, no state could take them away. Now, all that we've been saying up to this point could be summarized as follows. Our Constitution puts politics under theology, democracy under God. We now want to point out a great change that is taking place in the modern world. Today, theology is put under politics, God under democracy. The supreme and absolute determinant of all things today is politics. Humanity once lived in the age of the theological man. Then came the age of the economic man. Now we are in the age of the political man. The theological man lived for God. The economic man lived for profit. The political man lives for the state. What economics was to the days of dying liberalism, that politics is to the modern man. So important has politics become today that man judges religion now by its attitude toward politics rather than politics by its attitude toward religion. How did politics become so important in the world today? Through a loss of belief in the moral law. In the days when Christianity was the soul of civilization, when all men recognized they had a common end, both eternal and temporal, politics and economics held a very secondary place. But today, 
when men abandon a common philosophy of life. That is, when they disagree about ends, such as why we are living, where we are going, whether God exists, whether the moral law should be obeyed. They begin to concentrate their attention upon means and particularly upon politics. Politics thus becomes an absolute. Once men agreed that to enjoy shooting, they should have a common target. The kind of arrows they used were deemed of little importance. Today they disagree about the target, but insist that everyone should use the same arrows. Once when men sat down to table, they were agreed on the necessity of eating and thought the manner of eating to be of less importance. Now they disagree on eating and insist that everyone use a uniform ritual about knives and forks. When men agreed about the purpose of life, they admitted certain political relativities. But now they differ on the purpose of life, and they make politics a theology and direct the means of life about which there should be legitimate disagreement into an end of life about which no man may rightly disagree. That is the reason why in all totalitarian countries, Russia, Germany, and Italy up until a recent political demise, there is only one party. Everyone must think alike. And when everyone thinks alike, there is no thinking. The result is that in our society, politics enjoys the same status that theology enjoyed in a Christian society and appropriates even the very same emotions which once surrounded religion. The heretics today are the enemies of the party, not enemies of God's truth. Fascism, Nazism, and Communism have their inquisitorial sanctions which make the religious persecutions of the past pale into insignificance. The modern man would only smile if you told him that his attitude was not Christian. But he would knock you down if you told him that he was a fascist. And fascism is only communism in its dotage. To say a word against Russia today would be regarded by many as more serious than to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, if one says today it is cold in Moscow, he is labeled a fascist. Well, it is cold in Moscow. And because of this tendency to enthrone politics over theology, Caesar over God, an additional burden has been placed upon men of goodwill in order to preserve the moral law. And that is why we ask prayers of all of you. And hour a day, from Jews, from Protestants and Catholics. And we ask, too, that you write in for a little booklet entitled Friends, which we are publishing, and will send to you free purpose of this little booklet is to break down bigotry, anti-Semitism, 
and anti-Christianity. We're saying there's a burden on men of goodwill. This burden is threefold today. First, keep America on the moral standard. Second, love America because it is morally right. And thirdly, suffer rather than permit America to be wrong. The first duty of men of goodwill, keep America on the moral standard. We must not have one code for certain nations and another code for other nations. It would be wrong when one country absorbs another into itself to say, let us go to war. But when a third country absorbs a fourth into itself to say, it will make for world peace. It would be wrong when one form of totalitarianism extinguishes all other parties and allows no freedom of press to call it fascism, and when another country does exactly the same thing to call it democracy. It would be wrong when one country breaks a treaty with another in order to defend its own selfish interests to call it international banditry. And when another country does exactly the same thing to call it self-defense. It would be wrong to have one standard for soldiers and another for civilians in defense plants. Calling it a crime for a soldier to desert his post of duty and calling it progress when a defense worker deserts his. There must be no choosing among barbarities. Right is right if nobody is right. And wrong is wrong if everybody is wrong. And the second duty, men of goodwill must love America because it is morally right. It is an historical fact that a country begins to decline at that moment when its citizens begin to love a foreign country more than they love their own. And this happens at that very moment when justice and morality cease to be the root of patriotism. It happened, for example, when Frederick the Great refused to learn German and became so enamored of the godlessness of France that he loved it more than the decent traditions of his own land. The spiritual zero of morality was reached when Frederick invited Voltaire of France to Germany to absorb some of his atheistic irresponsibility. When these two individuals looked into one another's empty souls, they made a sneer that was as eternal as the smile of a skull. And what Frederick did to the moral heritage of his people, we must not do to our own. There is a danger that it may be done. One of the largest metropolitan dailies in the United States recently said that if a certain moral power, foreign power rather, wanted to seize other nations, that foreign power should be permitted to do so. And if this meant scrapping the Atlantic Charter, then it would be well to scrap it. 
Men of goodwill. The America that we love must be the America that is right. Not the America that appeases evil. And that brings us to our third duty. In a time of crisis, the difference between those who believe and live by the moral law and those who do not becomes intensified. And here I'm pointing out the duty of being ready to suffer if need be to keep America right. The less moral we are and the less Christian, the more we will be accepted by the world. As our Lord was accepted on Palm Sunday when it was thought that his ideas coincided with those of the mob. But the more Christian we become, the more God-fearing we become, the more we insist on morality and education, family life and politics, the more we will be regarded with suspicion and with hate. Our very existence will be regarded as a danger. We need do nothing to bring this reaction against us any more than the early Christians of Rome. They were good citizens. They were guilty of no other crime than that of refusing to call Nero fearer or God. And so strong is this spirit of repudiating the moral law in the world today that one can predict with infallible accuracy which of the two contending groups in any state of Europe will be favored by most of those journalists, commentators, and publicists who are making world opinion. It will invariably be that party, that group, and that underground whose background is irreligious, atheistic, or even anti-Christian. As the world grows into an ideological uniformity in which all men are supposed to think alike, the believer in the moral law, and particularly the church, will come in increasing conflict with it. It is beginning to be clear now that the liberalism of the last century was in reality only a transition between a society whose basis was Christian and a society that will be anti-Christian. And it will take great courage to resist, but our Lord expects us to do it. Remember, he said, but he that shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. One thing we must never do is to purchase a passing freedom by the sacrifice of God's truth. If the choice is to stultify ourselves by sacrificing our moral security for a false peace or to ennoble ourselves by suffering persecution, let us in God's name choose the ennoblement of persecution. And please God, it will not take a World War III to make us see that the strong America is the right America. And that brings us back to the beginning. What is an American? An American is one who believes that his rights and liberties come to him from God. Therefore, they are inalienable 
and no state on the face of God's earth can take them away. Such is an American. On April the 30th, 1777, George Washington, fearful that some of his men were more loyal to foreign powers than they were to their own country, posted an order that was to be obeyed absolutely at night. And now, as men forget the God who made them free, and as darkness settles over this earth and over this beloved land of ours, we needs must repost that order of Washington. Put none but Americans on guard tonight. How true. It is night. Put none but Americans on guard. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection uh, given back from 1944 by the uh, Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And at the time, he was Monsignor Sheen. Uh, Yet you could see he was uh, giving counsel to uh, those uh, sitting at home uh, during the war. And I don't mean to say sitting at home. Everybody was busy in the war effort, but yet... I think people were just looking to have someone make sense, uh, spiritual sense, I might say. And you can see by this reflection, he touches on, uh, you know, the ir- ir- um, I want to say, the irrational thought of uh, these uh, atheistic totalitarian regimes that uh, were very much in play during the war. Of course, Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, uh, again, all these dictators that were uh, trying to take over uh, countries and, of course, that um, a spirit of antichrist that um, pervaded. And uh, I think sometimes that spirit of antichrist is really anti-church and anti-cross. Uh, again, they don't want to accept the cross of Christ. And so uh, these are all gentle reminders of uh, choosing Christ each day, uh, choosing to pick up our cross and follow him. And um, I love how Fulton Sheen uh, really stressed, you know, the joys of being American and that um, we have received our rights from God. And it's true uh, in Canada and other countries throughout the world uh, that our rights come from God and they cannot be taken away from us. Uh, Although they are trying to take away our rights, and we see that every day in our political fights, and um, again, we pray for God's strength to resist and to speak the truth. Uh, But even back in 1944, Fulton Sheen was reminding uh, the audience that uh, our rights come from God and they're not to be taken away. So, uh, again, always this this movement of atheism that we see. Uh, again, throughout Fulton Sheen's writings, he talks about how the atheist, um, uh, this, uh, he calls it the new atheism, because back years ago, atheism was kind of like, um, how do I describe it? Uh, oh, I just don't believe in God. I choose not to believe in God. Uh, but today, the new atheism believes in God, but actually wants to attack God, uh, to burn down churches, to destroy uh, stories of the communists uh, breaking into convents and saying, 
where is that bread you call God? We want to destroy it. So, uh, again, as you look into the scriptures and you see how even the demons would say, you know, you are the Christ. Have you come to torment us? Uh, They acknowledge God. And so even today, the new atheism acknowledges God, but yet wants to destroy it. Uh, And of course, if it can't just um, burn down the churches and destroy the church, it will go after the church's representatives, which are, of course, our priests and religious, and even us, the lay faithful. So uh, let us be on guard. And let us continue to pray. And uh, this is what Fulton Sheen did in his recordings. You hear him week in and week out inviting us to pray a holy hour and to do our part. And uh, this is a spiritual war that we're in, uh, especially today. And so we have to combat that war with, again, the hour of prayer. Uh, Again, we all know that saying, evil has his hour and God has his day. Well, how we combat that evil hour is we pray the holy hour in reparation. And so uh, maybe we can double our efforts this week and uh, make those holy hours of prayer to combat the evil in the world. Uh, Now, one of the ways to combat evil is to go and make a good holy confession uh, a couple times a month. And uh, again, uh, again, let us get right with God. And so uh, we're going to have Fulton Sheen now give us a lesson on confession. And he gives it uh, by the way of a talk he gave in a retreat a few years ago. So uh, I'm going to invite you once again, just to sit back and relax and enjoy the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen as he gives a talk on confession. Please enjoy. I'm going to talk on confession today, my little children. And you are all innocent, you do not need it, so I'll begin the most important part of the talk by telling you some stories about confession. Then you can sleep. Kenan Mullen of Scotland told me that he was hearing confessions one evening and a little boy came to confession and the canon said to him why didn't you come to confession this afternoon when I was hearing confessions for children he said I didn't have any sins I had to wait for some Some lumberjacks in Canada decided to go to confession. They had not been there in a few years. So they sent the bravest of them all in first. And he said, Father, I've committed every sin a man can commit. Well, did you ever commit murder? No, he said, that's right. That's one sin I never committed. Well, you see, you have not examined your conscience properly. Go outside the box and examine your conscience, then come back. So as he stepped out of the box, he saw the long line of lumberjacks outside. He said, no use tonight, boys, just hearing murder cases. (laughs) And I was hearing confessions once. A little boy came in, and among the other things, he said, I threw peanuts into the swamp. 
I didn't pay any attention to it because I didn't think I knew my theology well enough to understand all of those sins. And another boy came in and, among other things, I pushed peanuts into the swamp. And I heard that 10 or 12 times. And the next boy came in and I said, I suppose you pushed peanuts into the swamp. No, he said, I'm peanuts. <laughs> you liked that one, didn't you? <laughs> well, we can't be telling you stories all day. So we must get to the older children. And may I begin by telling you that we are living in about the first age in the history of the world that has denied guilt and sin. Everyone today believes he's immaculately conceived. There are no sinners, we're just patients, but we're not penitents. Interesting it is that Carl Menninger of the Menninger Institute of Psychiatry in Kansas has just written a book saying, what has happened to sin? Curious that as the moral theologians and our catechisms drop the idea of sin, a psychiatrist is reminding us that there is sin. He, for example, has said that the theologians gave up sin and then the lawyers took it up and sin became an, a, a crime. And then the legalists gave it up, psychiatrists picked it up, and then it became a complex. Now, sin is a reality in the world, and we have to face it, for we are all sinners, everyone. As a matter of fact, we cannot begin to receive the mercy of God until we recognize that we are sinners. Now, what happens when we repress guilt and sin? And we do that. Men sin and they pay no attention to it. Same with women. Well, it has a tremendous effect on our mind and sometimes on our body. When we do not bring our sins to the surface and confess them to the good Lord. You have heard of transplants in medicine. A kidney transplant, a heart transplant. And you've often read too that the transplant was not effective or the heart transplant was not effective. Why? Because the body resisted it. There are antibodies in our organism that will not assimilate and take hold of a new organism. Now our soul is that way. It has antibodies. And when any sin gets into the soul, then we're disturbed. Mind is unhappy. It's very much like having a broken bone. The bone hurts. Why? Because the bone is not where it ought to be. 
And when our conscience is not where it ought to be, then we suffer. We have a disturbance of conscience. We're uneasy. We may try to cover it up by drink and amusement and so forth. But in moments of quiet, the guilt is there. Recall some of the effects of guilt as portrayed for us by Shakespeare. Now just think of it. Shakespeare was born in 1564. I hope that was it. That's coming out of my subconsciousness. Don't look it up. But I think that I was in second year college. I learned that Shakespeare was born in 1564 and died in 1616. Well, in any case, what is important is the fact that hundreds of years before we had psychiatry, he tells of a complex, a psychosis in the mind of Macbeth and a neurosis in the mind of Lady Macbeth. Now, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had contrived to kill the king in order to seize the throne. After the murder, Macbeth always seems to see a knife before him. He said, what is this I see before me? A knife with a handle toward my hand? There was no knife. This was a psychosis. This was the way the guilt was coming out. Lady Macbeth, she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She saw blood on the hands. And she asked, are not all the waters of the seven seas enough to wash this blood incarnadine from my hands? There was no blood on her hands. This was the effect on her mind of the suppression of guilt. A woman once came to me about her brother. She said, he's been going to doctors for about four or five years, and he is no better. His weight has gone down to 90 pounds. And would you see him? And I said, if his trouble is mental, I cannot help him. He belongs with a psychiatrist. If, however, there is a moral basis for his condition, then I can't help him. The man came, he weighed about 90 pounds, frail, fearful. And I said, talk to me for a half hour. I will not interrupt you. He talked for about 40 minutes. And I said, how much money did you steal? He said, I didn't steal. I said, how much was it? He said, I resent that. I am no thief. I did not steal. How much was it? He said, $3,000. He said, how did you know I stole? I said, I didn't know you stole. Well, why did you ask me? Well, I said, as you talked, you told me that whenever you put money in the collection box, you always wiped it off first. And I thought, perhaps you had dirty money. Yes, he said he had stolen $3,000.
Well, we made arrangements to pay it back, and his health picked up. This was the guilt on his soul. Just think, my dear ladies, of how many mentally disturbed women we are going to have in the United States in the next 10 or 15 years when the guilt of abortion begins to attack the mind and soul. For the present, they justify it on the grounds that everyone is doing it and it's only scar tissue anyway. As one doctor said to a girl who came in and said, well, it's only a little scar tissue, would you remember it? Would you dismember it? And uh, the doctor said, what did you intend to call the scar tissue? So in years from now, the guilt will come out in a peculiar way. Though at present, there may not be any. The guilt may not manifest itself at once. That is very evident in the course of the life of King David. David was one day on the top of his palace in the penthouse, and he looked across the street and he saw a woman on the adjoining penthouse, Bessabee. And he asked Bessabee to come over and see his etchings. And he loved Bessabee, not wisely, but too well. And she's found with child. The husband, Uriah, was away at war. Away at war. David called him back. As king, he could do that. And he said, go home to your wife. He said, no, I'm at war. We're not allowed to be with the wife when we're fighting. David then got him drunk, said, go home. He slept at David's front door. David was trying to blame, blame the paternity onto the husband. So finally, finding that he couldn't get rid of him that way, he said to the general, put him in the front lines. Men have to die in battle. Maybe Uriah will be killed. Uriah was killed. It didn't bother David in the least. Until about seven or eight months after, the prophet Nathan came to him. And he said, Nathan, I have a problem. He said, David, I have a problem. And you as king must settle it. There was a poor man who had one tiny little ewe lamb. Next door to this poor man lived a rich man who stole the poor lamb and made a banquet for his rich friends. And David immediately became interested in social justice. David said, this shall not be. He shall pay with his life and the property shall be restored fourfold. And Nathan said, thou art the man. You took the ewe lamb of Uriah. And you killed that ewe lamb. The ewe lamb was best to be, I mean. 
And you have taken this lamb away from the husband. And that was the moment when David sat down and wrote the famous Psalm 50. Have mercy on me, O Lord, have mercy on me. Or I think it's maybe 51 in the new scriptures. You see, sometimes, now not always, but sometimes we can cover up our want of individual justice by a great love of social justice. Remember when Judas was at the banquet room of Simon? The woman came in and poured ointment on the feet of our blessed Lord. Judas said, why this waste? Why not give this money to the poor? Well, you can imagine Judas going on making an attack against our blessed Lord, saying, for example, I heard you on the Mount of Beatitude say, Blessed are the poor. Where's your love of the poor now? Have you forgotten all of those people that are living on hanging shacks in the road between Jericho and Jerusalem? Remember the days when we walked through the inner city of Jerusalem? Have you no interest in those poor? Look at these humble fishermen shacks here at Capernaum. Where's your love of the poor? Our Lord said, Judas, you have the poor with you always. Me, not always. Was Judas interested in the poor? No. He was robbing the apostolic purse. And that's the way he covered it up. So when we suppress our guilt, it is there for eternity. Unless it is forgiven. When it's forgiven, it's completely blotted out. Well, how do we now, through the mercy of God and the fullness of faith in Christ, how are our sins forgiven? By confession. What is confession? Nudity. Nudity of the soul. Stripping ourselves of all false excuses and shams and pretenses and revealing ourselves as we really are. Do you know, my good people, that as we have given up examination of conscience and confession, that nudity increases in the world, physical nudity? Let us study it for a moment. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were naked, but not ashamed. Why? Because they were covered with the aura of God's grace. It, as it were, shone round about them, robed in glory. And hence there was no sense at all of nakedness. After they fell, they perceived themselves to be naked. Why? They lost the grace of God. And then they had to be clothed. Now I could give you, and I wish we had time, 
but I'm not going to do it. To tell you how their nakedness was covered up and to explain the mystery of it. Do you know how their nakedness was covered? Yes, fig leaves, I know, but they wilted. Their shame was revealed. How was it covered up? God made for them the skins of animals. God did something. It was done vicariously. An animal was killed, not them. And thirdly, it involved the shedding of blood. And I could take you all through the Old Testament and unfolding that story. But the point is that they were naked and ashamed because they'd lost the grace of God. In our modern world, we're bringing back nudity. Trying to get back into the Garden of Eden without walking up the hill of Calvary. And it cannot be done. So what is confession? It's another kind of nudity. Not epidemic or epidermic nudity, but ethical nudity in which we just say to the dear Lord, this is the way I am. I'm a miserable sinner. And when we make that confession, then what happens is what might be called the recycling of human garbage. We hear a great deal today about the recycling of garbage, but I'm speaking about the recycling of human garbage. When you go to confession, have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, incidentally, applied through the priest. When you go to confession and have your sins forgiven, there is always, of course, an effect of that sin that remains. Suppose, suppose that I told one of these little children that every time they did anything wrong they were to nail put a nail in a board can you imagine that every time you did wrong disobeyed your mother for example you were to drive a nail in the board and then every time your mother forgave you and you said I'm sorry the mother would tell you pull the nail out now is there anything left? What's left? What? Hole, yes. A hole. That's the effect of sin. See how wise these little children are? So that even though the sin is forgiven, we have to make some reparation for it. And that's the reason you're giving a penance and confession to fill up the holes. But we do not have to make adequate Reparation for sin because we have the mercy of the saints and I mean the intercession of the saints and the mercy of our blessed Lord but when we go to confession then our lives are completely changed now, I'm going to give you some examples of how lives are changed by submitting to the mercy of God uh, there was a man who used to come into a church in London, St. Patrick's Church. Every morning when I would open the church, he would come in and take one of the back pews, kneel down, not go to communion. He would come in about seven o'clock, 
not go to communion until about nine. He never used a prayer book. And he would meditate until about 11.30 in the morning, then go out, come back again in the afternoon, and stay until the church closed at night. Never spoke to anyone. After noticing this for several months, I said to him, If you, were you always as good as you are now? That was a test question. Because if he said yes, I knew he would, I would know he wasn't any good. <laughs> and he said, well, considering the grace that I have received, I am a thousand times worse now than I ever was. Then he told me about himself. He was an alcoholic. And he said, I was such an alcoholic that I used to take off my shoe, shoes at the pub door, the saloon door, the pub door, and sell them for a drink. But, he said, I would take the pledge every Ash Wednesday and keep it until Easter Sunday. And he did that every year, he says. Then one day he said to himself, if I can be good for 40 days, why can't I be good for 40 years? So I decided to be good for 40 years. But he said it wasn't quite that easy. I went into Maiden Lane Church, and I remembered him very well, and I dropped into Maiden Lane Church about nine months ago in London just to say a prayer for this good man, though I'm sure he doesn't need it. And he came into the church. There were three steps leading up from the Covent Garden section of London to the main floor of the church. And he knelt in the front pew for benediction. And as Father Carney laid hold of the monstrance to begin the benediction, he said there came over him overwhelming passion for drink and for vice. He said if the temptations of a lifetime were concentrated in one moment, they could not equal that agony. And he said it was so great that I couldn't stand it. So I bounded out of the pew, ran down the middle aisle, and I stumbled on the three steps. And as the benediction bell rang, he said, I tore out my heart, and I turned around, and I said, Dear Lord, forgive me. I will go to confession. And he said, I have had no drink since. And I spend my life in prayer. How many hours do you pray a day? Oh, he said, about 18. I said, what do you consider a really good day? He said, 24. I live, he said, in the same dive that I lived in when I was an alcoholic. And many a night, I will kneel alongside of my cot all night long praying for all the alcoholics. This was recycled garbage that the Lord loves. No wonder our Lord said there's more joy in heaven for one sinner doing penance than 99 just who need not penance. Then another story. What, another story? Yes, all right, another story. This is a story about a girl 
The last one was about a boy. I received a call from two little girls who came to the rectory to go immediately to an apartment house near the Hudson River. And they said, Kitty is dying. Who is Kitty? They said, don't you know Kitty? Everybody knows Kitty. I inquired about her illness and the little girl said she's dying. I took the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Oils. I climbed up five dingy flights of stairs to one of the dirtiest rooms that I was ever in. Meat, fat, papers, rags on the floor and over in the corner, a, a dirty cot, this young girl on it and very sick. Are you Kitty? Yes. Everybody knows me. And I said, Kitty, would you like to make your peace with the good Lord? And she said, no. I can't because I'm the worst girl in the city of New York. No, I said, you're not the worst girl in the city of New York. Because the worst girl in the city of New York says I'm the best girl in the city of New York. I begged and pleaded with her to go and she said, no, I can't. I'm too rotten. She said, look at my arms, all black and blue. That's from my husband. If I don't bring in enough money from the streets, he beats me. Now he's poisoned me. Now dying of poison. And I rehearsed for the parables of our blessed Lord, and finally she went to confession. But I had not anointed her, because it took so long to convince her of mercy. And the poison was getting into the different areas of the brain. And as it did, it, she seemed to have the impression of losing the external organ. For example, she would reach for her ear and say, Mother, here's my ear, and you keep it when I'm gone. And here, Anne, there was a girl who came in the room whom she begged to give up her life. And here's my eye. And then she would say, here's my tongue, you keep that. And I realized then that she was very serious, and I anointed her, and immediately she was all right. And I said, sorry, Kitty, you're back in this world again. And she said, yes, just to prove that I can be better. So she became an apostle among the very people with whom she worked. And I would be hearing confessions on a Saturday night, Open a slide. Father, this is the girl that Kitty told you about. Father, this is the boy that Kitty told you about. One night, she came to the rectory and she said, I have a girl who committed murder. Where is she? She's in the church. I said, no, the church is locked. Well, she said she's across the street then, seated on the stoop. So I went to the door and called her over. And in a short time, she went to confession. And that was the way 
that Kitty continued to exercise the apostolate of mercy after having been forgiven. Now we have all enjoyed it. We are the most fortunate people in the world because when we're burdened, we can go to the good Lord and receive an external sign that's needed. An external sign that we have been forgiven. Sin is not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is the denial of sin. If I am blind and deny there's any such thing as light, will I ever see? If I am deaf and deny there's any such thing as sound, will I ever hear? And if I deny that I am a sinner, how can I ever be forgiven? So worse than sin is the denial of sin, which is our modern attitude toward life. If then your soul is burdened, take it to the Lord. He died for you. He will forgive you. And just as there's hardly anything more refreshing than a good bath, so there's nothing spiritually more refreshing than an absolution. The beauty of it is we can start all over again. The Lord's mercy is unlimited. But we just have to have trust in him. So I will leave you this consoling thought. If you had never sinned, you never could call Jesus Savior. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.